to John chapter 15. We'll be picking up in verse 18 today. John 15, beginning in verse 18. Do you remember as we continue to journey on through John's Gospel, this is uh, the point in time where we are getting very near to the, uh, the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is giving uh, what really amounts to kind of last-minute instructions and a pep talk to his uh, followers at this point in time, many of whom aren't going to get it uh, right now. Um, we know that because they're going to all run and hide within a matter of a couple hours. But I've entitled this message Anticipating and Responding to Hate because Jesus is preparing his disciples for what discipleship is going to look like. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And one component that Jesus promises will be a part of that is hatred, animosity, misunderstanding, um, towards Christ, towards His message, and towards all people who would follow Him and towards His church, quite honestly. We should be surprised in the day and age that we live and the responses that we receive because it's just the truth of Jesus Christ and His Word being played out in our own very lives. Honestly, hatred and and persecution and Christianity have always seemed to go together. And it it took no time at all after the church formed for this to start. If you would, let me give you just a few minutes uh, to explain what I think we've quickly lost with regard to perspective in the church today. How real hatred is. How real the disagreement and the animosity is towards Christ and His message in the world throughout history. After the church started, it was, it was the Jewish elite, it was the teachers of the law, it was the, the chief priests who would move in immediately. It would be the, the religious people who would begin to harp on this new thing that they dubbed the way. And we see this in Acts chapter 4. Uh, the church begins to immediately preach the truth of Christ, and we see in Acts 4, verse 1, it says, Now as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the commander of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them, because they were provoked that they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead, using Jesus as the example. So they seized them, and they put them in custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about... 5,000. Shortly after that, we come to the point of the first person who would be killed for their faith in Jesus Christ, which the book of Acts tells us was a, a man by the name of Stephen. As he came to be the first martyr under the same venom, and, uh, and you can look up his story in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. But ultimately, it would be all the apostles minus John that would be killed for their faith in Christ. And John himself would not necessarily be killed, but he would spend his life in torture and hatred and eventually exile where he dies. He spends the last days of his life in exile on the island of Patmos where he would receive the blessed revelation the last book of the Bible. 
And then we see Paul's dramatic conversion, which led him from being the persecutor to the persecuted. You could arguably, arguably say that there's, there's been very few people that have led their life with this much affliction and not to have been killed as a result. Ultimately, uh, it's our understanding that Paul would be martyred. But here we know in the book of Acts, we see the great missionary of the new church as he succinctly recounts his life for the sake of the Corinthians. And he talks about what his life has been like as a follower of Jesus Christ. And these are Paul's words. This is how he summarizes his life. Is this how you would summarize your life? Maybe you wouldn't want to. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, he said, it's talking about the people who are speaking out against him. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me on my anxiety for all the churches. That dude led a tough life. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, honestly, of his life. And eventually he too would pay with his own life. He would die a martyr for Christ. You see, under the Jews, it was this hatred regarding Jesus as the resurrection, Jesus as the Messiah. They couldn't couldn't handle it, so they decided to try and squash this thing called the church, to squash the way. But eventually the hatred would spread from simply the Jews to the Romans, but for slightly different reasons. See, the Romans, it was perce- the perceived threat was that to the state and that to Caesar. Christians were not recognized as a state religion. The Jews were tolerated as a religion because of agreements that had been reached. The Jews operated under the authority of Caesar. Christians would not. Um, So what we have here is Christians who were not being recognized as part of a state religion and they refused to worship the Roman gods and they refused to worship Caesar because they had no other god other than Jesus Christ. To worship any other god would have been blasphemy. Christianity also empowered the lower classes in the Roman state to levels of freedom that they had never experienced before. The the upper classes in the Roman, uh, the, the whatever you want to call them, the... The higher classes just did not, and the political classes could not bring themselves to accept the fact that the lower classes who had once been slaves now viewed themselves as free in Christ. So they hated Christianity for that. In the first few centuries under emperors such as Nero and Domitian, Trajan, Decius, and Diocletian, these guys viewed themselves as gods. So Christians were often arrested, they were tortured, they were thrown to wild animals for sports, as you often hear of the gladiators 
what they would do is they would rile the crowd up by taking Christians and throwing them into the arena so that everybody could get their uh, taste of blood and they would watch Christians be slaughtered at the hands of wild animals such as lions and tigers and bears and all those things. They were crucified by the Roman state. And in one particular instance, the Roman Caesar Nero, in an effort to appease the masses, gathered together Christians and he burned them as torches to light his evening garden parties. In the Middle Ages... Uh, this is a little difficult to say, but in the Middle Ages, the greatest persecutor of believers was the Catholic Church. Just the Spanish Inquisition alone was responsible for upwards of 10,000 being executed for their faith in Christ alone. They didn't recognize the Pope as the head of the church. They recognized Christ as the head of the church. 10,000 were martyred for that. And as best estimate from historians, 100,000 were left to rot and die in prison because they would not recant the message of faith and salvation through faith and grace alone in Jesus Christ. Since the persecution of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, it's been the communists and the Islamic church or the Islamic religion the regimes of communism and Islam that have been the chief persecutors of Christianity. And now what we see developing is post-Christian atheistic movements that are spearheading cultural movements that are spearheading hatred towards Christianity and to those who would choose to follow Christ. When we think of persecution, when we think of hatred towards Christ, when we think of hatred towards His church, when we think of martyrdom, our minds go back to ancient times. We think those were the times when it was the worst. More people were killed then than now. I'm just telling you, it's, it's not true. As best we can tell through historical accounts, 70 million, some 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith. Two-thirds of those since the start of the 20th century. 100,000 a year have been slaughtered in the name of Christ just since 1990. And those of you who are familiar with the work that our missionaries are doing around the world, that comes as no shock to you. The scourge of ISIS has almost eliminated Christianity from the nation of Iraq just in our recent two or three years. I was just telling my family on the way over here, I don't know if the numbers are accurate, but there are anything close to this. It's scary. You know, the nation of Iraq had a Christian population as best estimated between after the liberation of the war of 2003, the best estimate was somewhere between three and 500,000 was the Christian population in Iraq. Now, after ISIS, the best we can tell, it's somewhere between 20 and 30,000. 
All the other Christians have either been persecuted and scattered, arrested, or killed for their faith in Christ. And none of this, none of it, is a shock to our Lord. None of it surprises Him, and none of it makes Him fearful. Because He's already claimed victory on our behalf. Remember, Christ said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So as a Christian matures, they understand that persecution, that hatred, that misunderstanding is just part of it. As you live for Christ, the world is going, and the louder you live for Christ, the more the world is going to despise you, hate you. They're, what they do today, they don't use those words hatred, or they label you, they marginalize you, they try and squeeze you, they try and remove your rights. But it's, it's a dislike that has burned to a level of hatred. And none of it surprises Jesus. Listen to his words in John 15. Our core text today as we pick up in verse 18. He prepares his disciples for this. He says to them, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning." I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour, um, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. It makes me think of every Muslim terrorist attack. What do the attackers yell out? Allahu Akbar means God is great. Our God is great. That's why I must slaughter the infidels. They think they're doing a service to God. Jesus lays out here, I think, clearly for us three reasons why people will hate us and three responses that we are to have to that hate. First is this. Why? What is a source of hate? Hatred because of Jesus, quite simply. And I won't spend a lot of time on this. It's very clear. Hatred because of Jesus. He says it in verse 18 when he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Simply put, 
this attitude of hostility towards disciples is merely an extension of the hatred that it has towards Jesus Christ. This can help a lot in our response because it helps to get our mind around the fact that this isn't necessarily a personal thing. Well, it is a personal thing, but it's not necessarily a personal thing about you. It's a personal thing about Christ. They just don't like you because they don't like Jesus and His message. We know they hated Him. We read this in John 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. They hated Jesus because Jesus was assuming His rightful title of Son of God. Jesus was assuming His position as equal with the Father. The Ancient of Days, the Eternal Creator, this is who Jesus was. And when He said these things about Himself, they felt He was blaspheming. Jesus was simply acquiring that which is His rightful title. But they hated Him because of this. It did not take people long who were in positions of religious power to hate Christ because He destructed everything that they stood for. Now the second source of hate. They're going to hate us. They're going to hate the message because of or as a result of your identity. They hate Jesus and they're going to hate you because and they're going to hate your church because you identify with that Jesus. Your identity stands with Christ. You belong to Him. Your identity, my identity, stands against the world. Your life and your beliefs are in direct contrast to what the world is pushing for, is it not? And I would say as Christians, it may be a bit of a gut check time if we find that the majority of things that we do believe in, the majority of things that we do push for, the way we do prioritize our life is moving in the same direction that the world is moving in. Because the things of God are contrary to the things of this world. And I think as the days continue to go on and years turn into decades and decades turn into centuries, you will see this chasm, this rift is going to get bigger and bigger. We are going to be more and more isolated. We are going to look like people who are less of the world. There's a constant debate going on among evangelical leaders today as far as what's happening to the population of the church. Why is the church seems to be dwindling in numbers. I mean, we see new churches starting, but those new churches are of minimal numbers. The, the large crowds that used to just build up quickly these massive, uh, uh, great cathedral of churches is no more. The church growth explosion thing and what you're beginning to see more of is smaller enclaves of more dedicated people. The expectation that people on the periphery are just going to continue to show up to church on Sunday is gone. You know, we can't compete with youth soccer. We can't compete with um, spring Sunday mornings in the park. It, people have other more important things that they want to be about. Does this have something to do with the growth of the church? And here's what Albert Moeller, who is... Um, president of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and just a phenomenal thinker. But one of the things he said at a conference that I was at um, back in March, uh, he said, 
It used to be in this country where you could go to church and the culture was so enamored with church that you could go to church and you could gain social capital simply by being a part of a church. Now, the tide has turned. If you want to be committed to a church and you want to faithfully follow Christ, you have to do so at the peril of losing social capital. You used to be able to go to church and uh, maybe find some new business, do a little bit of networking, join the softball, find the softball team you were looking for, and never be asked of any sort of commitment. But now, uh, you must commit because the culture will not allow any sort of mushy middle in the church. So, one of the theories out there, and I'm not saying I'm wholeheartedly into this, but it does make some sense. The mushy middle in the church is disappearing because it no longer benefits them because of the pressure that the culture is putting on them. Does it make sense? So while we say we're not really a persecuted people or why there's really not this raging animosity towards us, I think what you're starting to see is some of the the groundwork being laid in the Christian church, even in America today, of people who are in the mushy middle and they're saying, you know what, it, it doesn't really benefit me, there's no real social benefit, and it's really that guy or that group of people in that church or that small group that I used to be a part of, they really seem to be expecting a lot of me. It's just not worth it. I'm not getting any cultural benefit out of this. So I'm out of here. Part of that is the growing animosity towards Christ and His church from the culture that we live in today. Our identity stands against the world. And Jesus says this. He says, and when you begin to feel sorry for yourself, just think, you know, why should you feel sorry for yourself? Because your identity is no greater than your master. Why should you think that your life should be any easier than Christ? Why should your treatment be any better? Why should mine be any better? Why should be the stuff that I'm called to be any easier than the things that Christ was called to? The third source that Jesus talks about here with regard to hatred is this. He refers to hatred as a result of not knowing. And when I say not knowing, I'm not talking about the church not knowing. I'm talking about the world not knowing. And specifically, not knowing the Father. Jesus tells his disciples that what will be done to them is because they don't know the Father who sent them, or who sent him. This is in keeping with what he told the Pharisees. Remember in John chapter 8, he kind of tipped his hand off here to the Pharisees. He said, It says, Jesus said to them, If you, if God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. Yikes. These guys think that they are the religious elites. They think nobody is closer to the Heavenly Father than them. And Jesus says, oh yeah, you got a father, all right. Your daddy's the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? And those are harsh words that Jesus tells the Pharisees. And he reminds the disciples later on, he said the reason they're going to hate you is because they don't believe in the Father who sent me. They don't believe in the Father of truth. They're incapable of it. Jesus tells us here in um, verses 21 to 25, their guilt, he says, he refers twice to why they're guilty. He says their guilt exists because he, Jesus, came speaking the truthful revelation. Jesus spoke the Father's truth. Because he did that, the unbelievers are guilty. We've said it from this pulpit in this congregation many times. People don't go to hell because they do bad things. People go to hell because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. That's not my word. I mean, Jesus is saying that. You are of the devil because you do not believe in the Father who sent me and I am equal with the Father. To reject eternal life is a result of rejecting God's Son, Jesus Christ. But he also says that their guilt exists because he came practicing the miraculous revelation. Not only was he speaking truth, but he was modeling to them all in no uncertain terms, I am God. And the Father is with me. And I am in the Father. Who's the last person you know that resurrected somebody from the dead? I mean, then that's just one little small thing on Jesus' resume. Lazarus, I mean, that's... How many people were cured of skin diseases and leprosy? How many people had their sight given back? How many women found hope that they could never find before they met Christ? And yet, Jesus did this time and time and time again, and the people who rejected Him grew. Every time Jesus did something miraculous, they hated Him more. You say, how is that even possible? Well, look at the world around us today. Jesus forgiving people and giving their life back. Jesus is making people whole. And the world labels that person, don't they? You're a fundamentalist. You're a Bible beater. You're, you're propped up by that crutch of religion now, aren't you? Like they just got back from an AA meeting or something. No. This is Jesus transforming people's lives from the inside out. And I don't ever get tired of seeing that. Don't. Everything Jesus did on earth points towards His existence as the Heavenly Father. And He says the reason they're guilty is because they have now seen the Father and have still chosen to reject. Seen. The word seen the Father. Horeo in Greek. It's not just like a physical seeing. It's not like when you... If I'm out back here and I spot a robin in the grass, it's not that kind of scene. Horeo means that you've discerned and you've experienced fully. So they have, this isn't they spotted Jesus as he passed by on the street. This means that they've seen for real the evidence that Jesus is the Father. They've seen the Father through Christ. They've processed this and they've chosen to reject. We often so associate Jesus with saving, 
We associate Jesus with grace. We associate Jesus with forgiveness. And those are all so, so true. But sometimes we need to be reminded that Jesus came preaching a message of conviction as well. You think, oh, conviction, that was John the Baptist's business. Jesus came just preaching love and, and you know, cuddly bunny rabbits and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And the, actually, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, which meant fall on your faces before me, accept me. And accept me means you accept the Heavenly Father and the message that He has for your life. The really sad thing is, that when we read here chapter 16, the first verse, four verses, Jesus even warns us that they'll persecute because they say they know the Father. They don't. They don't. So, there's the discouraging part, church. I mean, there's three really solid reasons. There's many more, but there's three really solid reasons why if you choose to live your life as a sold-out, born-again believer, follower, or disciple of Jesus Christ, you are going to be rejected by the world. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be hated. You're going to be spoken about behind your back. You're going to be all those things. But there are ways that Jesus tells us we can overcome those things. You may not be able to fix somebody's hatred towards you, but there is a way that we overcome as believers. And the first he said is this. and I mean, just how amazingly beautiful is this? The first is trusting in the helper. Jesus said, just leave this out there as bad news for these guys. Hey, I'm going to the cross. You know, I'm going to die. And by the way, the world's going to hate you. Good luck with that. I mean, how terrible would that be? No, Jesus gives them the greatest news of hope. I'm going away, and it's better that I go away because I'm sending the Helper. The Spirit of God is coming. Amidst his tone of gloom and just gray skies, Jesus interjects this bright spot of hope that the Holy Spirit is coming for such persecution and hatred. And as believers, we think, you know, how do we overcome the culture? How do we overcome this animosity and hatred? What's the solution? And we, our immediate reaction is to look inward. We think, you know, well, what program can we put in place? Or what kind of apologetic do I need to become better at? Or what kind of communication skill do I need to perfect in order to just convince that person that they don't need to hate me personally anymore and that, that they're going to love me? And the answer isn't inward. The answer is upward, trusting in the Holy Spirit. Our help and assurance is divine. It's not something that we manufacture in and of ourselves and our skill sets. It's divine. Remember these encouraging words in Matthew 10. Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you will speak or what you will say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus knew that this was coming. He knew in His mind's eye that someday there would be this persecutor named Saul who would be converted and he would take the name Paul and he would stand before kings and leaders, rulers, and he would proclaim Christ. 
and that the words that would come from Him would not be His words, but the Word of the Spirit of God that would speak. And it is with all of us. There's nothing more uncomfortable than having a spiritual conversation with somebody that you know hates God. And yet we shouldn't be fearful of these things. The second way we overcome hatred, according to Christ, is being a witness no matter what. Being a witness no matter what. What does that mean? I mean, so when friction comes, do we turtle up? We crawl into our holy shell with all our holy buddies that we call church and forget that we have a mission? As the world gets more hostile towards the church, does the church go monastic? It's the whole problem with it. Monks used to think that they were doing a great favor to God because they would they would beat themselves and they would they would uh, live in solitude and they would put in place practices in their lives that would bring about personal penance and they felt like that brought them closer to God. And in reality, all monasticism did was kill the witness of the church. Who's taking the gospel if all the holy people are huddled up beating themselves with whips? Amidst the increasing hatred and persecution in Acts 4, we see that this was exactly the response of the apostles. They they did not huddle up amongst themselves and be content with the two or three or four or five thousand people that had been given to the church They decided that they were going to continue to witness amidst the persecution. In Acts 4, we read this. However, so this does not spread any further. The the religious leaders are telling them, stop speaking about Christ. However, so this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. But for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I love the phrasing of that. He doesn't even say we must continue to speak about what we've seen and heard. He says, we're unable to stop doing it. I wish God would lighten me a bigger fire that sounds like that because too easily in my life I feel like my witness is a spigot that I can turn off and on. These guys felt like they had no control over it. Many of you were here when we were renovating the building when we first got in here. Remember this, John, and the plumbing, the pipe... The nozzle that shuts off the plumbing in the bathroom, just because it's the building that we were in, it just snapped off. And I happened to be the guy in the bathroom at that time. And the water is just, I mean, like full force, just bore coming out of the bathroom of the wall. And there's no way to shut it off. And John's in the other room, and all he hears is, shut it off, shut it off! And I, like the little Dutch boy, I got my finger in the copper pipe trying to stop the water, and it's not working. It just keeps coming at you. Couldn't shut it off. Eventually, John had to find a key and then get in a closet outside and try and figure out which knob turned off the main water supply to the building. And by this point, I am drenched, and we have puddles of water all over the foyer of the church. I wish my faith was like that. My witness 
the best solution to a world that hates the message of Christ is the message of Christ. Acts 4 is quite telling to us. This is the way it goes down. If you read Acts 4 and you can do it on your own time, this is the way the whole chapter goes down. The new church. They witness. They're arrested. The church grows numerically. You catch that? They witness. They're persecuted. The church grows. And not just by like two. The church grows by thousands. But it's not done yet. They preach and heal more. They stand out as different in Christ, but they're told to shut up, and they preach more anyway, and the church grows. It's a cycle. We're fearful that if we share Christ too much, or that if we preach the message of Christ to the world that hates Him, that we are going to offend, and that the church is never going to grow. Look, how's that working out for us? The answer to a world that hates the message of Christ is to preach the message of Christ. And let him grow his church. And at, at, towards the end of the chapter, we see that the church prays for more boldness amidst, perse- amidst persecution and hatred, and that the church, as a result, grows even more unified and on mission. See, when we struggle in personal areas of our lives, or when we feel like there's a lot of friction from our culture or society to the message of Christ, we, again, we sort of personally turtle up. We become, um, we seclude ourselves. And what the early church did was, as the, as the personal animosity and hatred grew in each person's life, as they were threatened individually, what they did was they came together and they prayed in a uniform way. They prayed for boldness, it says. So that, and maybe we forget this impact of the church body, but like, If I have a work to do or you have a work to do, and it's a hard work, maybe we exist one for another. So that if if Andrew is called to go and share Christ with a neighbor, and that neighbor hates Christ, and as it it turns out that he, he begins to push Andrew away, or that their relationship becomes strained, that as believers we come together and we can encourage Andrew that no, you are doing the right thing. Sharing Christ is the right way to go. Press on, brother. The church has two responses to cultural and religious hatred and persecution. One is to quiet down and perhaps change your message, which is what a lot of churches are choosing to do today, are they not? Or pray for boldness and go at it with even more faith. If your small group's not working out and it's, you know, it seems slow and growing, if the church seems slow and growing, if the, the ministry that you're so passionate about is, just seems to be taking really long time to gain traction, let's pray for one another about that and encourage one another to press on. It's not going to get easier. Things aren't going to grow as fast as they did in this country 30, 40, 50 years ago. And maybe that's not a bad thing because the mushy middle's gone. Thirdly, the way we overcome hatred is this. Not clinging to circumstantial Christianity. You see, in these verses uh, 1 to 4 of chapter 16, let me read it to you one more time. He said, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. 
They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God, and they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. What is Jesus telling them here? When he says to keep you from falling away, it's, it's almost like he knew that when the going gets tough, that's not the time to consider quitting. That's not the time to consider uh, giving up on your mission, your ministry, giving up on your passion. It's not the time to bail on the Gospel of Christ when things get tough. The things we do, church, are hard. They're really hard. God moves us to do hard things. And if you haven't been moved to do a hard thing for Christ in a while, now's the time to start praying that He would. Because it's not Him that's keeping you from doing hard things for God. It's us. In the midst of the difficulty that is our culture, our environment, and the hatred of the people towards Christ, it is not Christ who is pulling off the accelerator. It's us. And this, the day of preaching a gospel message that says that when um, you do things for Jesus, they always bring about pleasure uh, in a physical sense or a material sense or an emotional sense. Those, those days need to go away. For too long, this idea of prosperity and self-satisfaction that must come out of the Gospel of Christ and the work that we do, that has to end. There are things that God calls us to do that are really hard and painful and they may mean a life of affliction or even death. And you know what? It's God's prerogative to call us to such things. It's not our prerogative to reject such things. Don't associate challenges and resistance in your life with failure. If you're serious about the Gospel, then those things are usually a measure of growing in faith and obedience. I'd rather live a life of friction knowing that I'm obedient to Christ than a life of pleasure and wondering if I'm doing His work at all. Bill came in this morning and off the top of my head when he was walking in the door, I held the door open for him and I, I just quoted the psalmist who said, you know, better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked or feast in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather be the Lord's doorkeeper and kicked in the shin as people come in than uh, have everything I think I want while dwelling under the leadership and acceptance of the wicked. May that be our call today. Let's be a people who are about the hard work of Christ, sticking to the Gospel message, proclaiming His truth, no matter what the world thinks of us. Because it's not going to get easier, it's going to get harder. We need to decide today who are we as believers. 
And as I close, I don't, I don't want to ever communicate that when we ask people to commit their life to Christ, that it's going to make your life materially or physically better. It may not. But yet Christ has done something. He said that He would replace a yoke of burden that's upon us and He would replace it with His yoke, which is easy and light. There's joy in knowing that even though life is hard, the things I'm doing are of eternal value. The things I'm doing are right. So if you're in this place today and and you've, you've never committed your life to Christ in the first place to say, you know what, I, I'm just a sinner. I don't have a perfect life. I can't meet God's standard in my own strength. That's good news to you today because here's why. Jesus came to die on the cross and take all your unrighteousness and pay for it on the cross. And then what He did was He took all of His perfect righteousness and placed it upon us. We don't deserve it. That's called grace. And He removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, which means that your sin can never catch up to you again. You never have to be questioning whether you're good enough for God. Because when God looks at you after you're born again, after you're saved in Christ, all He sees is the loving righteousness and perfection of His Son, Jesus Christ, in your life. I want you to experience that today. If you never made that decision, I'm going to close in prayer and I'm going to ask you to make that decision. So that... Should you leave this place today and be run over by a combine on McCorkle Road? Hey, it's possible. Your future is secure. Paul said, absent from the body is present with the Lord. The moment my day is over here, without even the split-second blink of an eye, I'm present with Christ forever. I want you to have that security. And for the rest of us as believers... How can you step up more? What can we do more? How can we pray more for one another? How can we rally around one another? How can we fulfill the gospel call of ministry even when the world is pushing back against it? It's going to take commitment from every single one of us. Let's pray for that, all right? Let's go to the Lord.